My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast. I'm Cami Ahrens. I'm your host. And today for August, we have something a little fun to talk about. We're going to be focusing on movies that were made in Raven County. Now, if you remember or if you tuned in last year uh, for episode five, we had a special student produced episode on the movie Deliverance. In Appalachia, specifically in Rabin County, we don't necessarily have a great history or track record with movies coming into the area. Um, Deliverance obviously has its contentions and I won't go too much into Deliverance today since we've already covered it in one episode. But a lot of times the area has been misrepresented by the film industry. What's really interesting is now as Georgia explodes in terms of the film industry and is starting to rival Hollywood, honestly. Um, we've seen more and more production companies coming into Northeast Georgia. I feel like you can't watch a Hallmark Christmas film anymore without recognizing one of the locations from this region. In the two, two and a half years that I've lived in Georgia, I've had the opportunity actually to participate in two movies. There have been more than just those two that have come into the area though. So we are seeing more and more film industry starting to recognize the beauty and the uniqueness of the locations in the mountains. Georgia has become incredibly popular among film companies because of tax breaks, permits, um, and other you know, legalities in California have simply become ridiculously expensive. But the tax breaks in Georgia have not only allowed big production companies to come in, but a lot of smaller production independent films have been able to really take advantage of those tax breaks as well. At Foxfire alone, we've had, I know, at least two indie films that have come and used the location. Um, and we've been scouted by other films as well. And some of those companies have come from Georgia, but some of them have come down from North Carolina as well. So it really is becoming a hub of movie activity. What was interesting in the two film sets that I was on as an extra, you know, it was really cool to see how everybody operated on a film set. But as an affiliate of a heritage and history organization, it was interesting to see how these people who came from places like California, um, New York, other big cities who came up to our little mountain town, how they reacted and treated the area. The two things that really stood out to me the most and still kind of have me thinking about them is, first of all, every large film set is catered and they bring in special catering teams. And what was interesting is they had this incredibly large amount of food left over, you know, and we're not talking like fried chicken, but, you know, steak and salads fruits, veggies, nutritious food. And at the end of the day, they had to throw everything away. They didn't keep any of the food, which, you know, for me is hard in general to throw food away, but even harder up here because about 
50%, I believe, of public school children are on free or reduced lunches. We have a free lunch program that operates through the summer so that kids can get um, regular meals throughout the summer. And where we were at with the catering hall was right next to one of these free lunch spots. And I approached the caterers as they were throwing this food away because I was just in shock, you know, and I asked them, I was like, why are you throwing all this food away? And they, they said that they had to, they had no way to keep it. I simply said, you know, you're in an impoverished area where food insecurity is very present in most homes and we're right next to a food pickup area. Is there any way that you could coordinate with them to maybe donate this food. And unfortunately, he just said that his hands were tied, which broke my heart a little bit, but it really was eye-opening, especially because we were on a set um, that was touting this sense of um, environmentalism. So everything was compostable or recyclable. They weren't allowing disposable plastic water bottles on set because they were bad for the environment. And yet we can't find a way to donate these high quality foods to people in need. So that, that was a really eye-opening experience for me. The other thing that really stood out to me was how people approached the region itself, um, especially for a lot of the people who'd flown in, um, were complaining about the remoteness of the location and complaining about the lack of cell service. And yet at the same time, they went to a local outdoor store and bought this brand name that represents North Georgia, the outdoors, embracing this this type of life. And they all had to have this brand name. So they were buying into this branded ideal of the Northern mountains, of the remoteness, of the wilderness. But yet all I heard were complaints about where they were instead of embracing a different scenery and appreciating the landscape for what it is. So those were just two things that have really stuck with me and I've thought about a lot. But you know, as an extra, you really don't have a good sense of what the production company thinks. It's just what a lot of the little people think. And on some of these film sets, there's, you know, a couple hundred people. So definitely a diversity of opinions. And I don't want to portray all the film sets as negative. We had a wonderful time and it was a lot of fun and really interesting. So I think film is changing up here and I hope that as more industry comes into the area to make these productions that they'll find more ways to connect with the community and the landscape. So today on this podcast we're going to hear from several different individuals. Four of them are discussing one film and the other two are related to different aspects of film production. The first four are Johnny Eller, Eula Parker, Douglas Blackley and Frank Rickman. And these four individuals all took part or witnessed the production of The Great Locomotive Chase. The Great Locomotive Chase was a film that was released in 1956. It's actually a Disney film that features um, Fess Parker, who was well known as portraying the character of Daniel Boone. The Great Locomotive Chase is based off of a historical event that occurred during the Civil War when some Yankee soldiers basically attacked the Southern railroads. So it's a story of this battle between the Yankees who are trying to end the Civil War. And it was filmed here in Raven County. Back in the 1950s, the Tallulah Falls Railroad um, was still in operation. So they used the railroad track that was in place through Raven County. Well, Disney actually brought in historic rail cars. One thing I know about Walt Disney um, from having friends who are huge Disney fans 
is that Walt Disney really liked trains and so he actually collected a lot of historic trains. So he brought in these antique rail cars and you'll hear from Frank Rickman how they managed to handle these cars without damaging them and film them. The Tallulah Falls Railroad, if I'll hopefully try to find some pictures if you've ever seen pictures of it, had these remarkable wooden trusses that would be frightening probably to most of us today. And Douglas Blackley, who played a minor character in the film, talks about the fear that he felt going over some of these trusses. Um, another interesting thing about Doug Blackley is even as, you know, as a slightly minor character, he was featured on the Mouseketeers. They actually flew him out to California for filming and then later again for a premiere. So pretty cool story from them. Um, and it's, it's interesting to hear about local perspectives of Walt Disney. They all speak really positively of the film crew that came here. Um, and they also highlight how important the jobs that the film industry provided were. This holds true today. The film industry does provide a lot of income for people in the region. So it definitely does have benefits for the county specifically. Well, can you, can you tell me what you remember when they was making the movie? Yeah, they had the depot was still out where the Keller's furniture is when they had the, was making that movie, Walt Disney. And they told me just to stand there and be a onlooker right in front of the depot when the train come in. Just watch people get on and off the train when it comes in. <coughs> we stand there and I stand there by Fess Parker. He was taller than me, you know, and Kenneth Tobin, one of the movie stars over on the left of me. Fish Parker, he looked up at the sky, you know, and he said, it's a cloud and over. He looked down at me and he said, you think it's rain? And I looked up, you know, at the sky and looked at him. I said, it might could rain. It rains one minute and shines the next. That's what I had to say. Well, there was a lot of people standing around the depot from Atlanta, women, men, just onlookers, you know, that come to see that movie. Didn't you say you had another part in it too? You had two parts in there? Well, I was a standby one day. Didn't have to do anything. Didn't use me at all, you know. <coughs> and I rode with them up somewhere up North Carolina on the train. The old general, I think it was, that went to use in the movie. Yeah, they give me a my wardrobe clothes. I remember I had a string for a watch chain. I believe it was. I had some big old watches in. That's what I say. Do you remember any of the other actors that was in it? Fess Parker and... Well, Jeffrey Hunter was in it. He was one of the leading movie stars like Fess Parker. And I had a picture. It's in a newspaper somewhere. And now I don't know where it is. Sue lost They took a picture of me. I think I was smoking an old cob pipe. I and, I, yeah, yeah. and I made one cob pipe for the engineer on that train. He won one. He said one was brand new and it never been fired up, you know, it never had tobacco in the smoke. And I made him one. He paid me something for 
for making. Song with the moving people around. I think they was here about two or three weeks. Well, I remember they were here a good while. Ballard Watts, he was in the movie, and Luther Watts. They each one, I think, worked about seven days. They, they was just standbys, you know, in case they need them in the movie. They never did have to be in the movie. They didn't put them in. I think they got $10 a day at a standby. Do you remember watching them when they made that movie? Oh, Lord, I went every day. My husband played him. What, what was his name? Bob Parker. Was it? I got his picture sitting up in there. Yeah, he, he, he come down up in there. They had that, that movie, had a bunch. It come right across that hill right above Dillard. Down through there, the way up high, the oh. train did. And up there, Bob was uh, leading all the army. He had on a Confederate suit. And uh, he was leading the army, but he was asked to pass Parker, trying to catch him. And they come on up there, right up there by where the road turned off into that fellow's fish pond or somewhere, long down further than that. Uh, Bob was and said he caught the movie star. They went down through there and that horse was he just young then. And boy, he would run. And uh, Bob said he jumped that whole little old street yard they used to have, the railroad track. He went across that, run around out there on the hill and passed Parker, stopped it, you know, and he laid it because of our man that was running from his ass of him. And, uh, by all them, Lord, I've I seen all of them. But you know that movie when it come out and showed on the house? Now, if you can find it, it's somewhere or another. Somebody's got it stuck back somewhere or another. It's a picture made of all these places of Reverend County. And the last time I heard of it, here in town, they kept passing it around. It was still new when... The rubber mill come in here because they added on to it. It's on the tail end of it. And me and Bob was riding uh, the horses right in that lane out there. Both of us were riding in the lane that was beautiful then, the pine trees. Mm -hmm. And we was riding in that. That's in that movie. Is it? But this is a great locomotive chase that they made. And they made it right out here in town. They didn't know about the names, but they did have it sewed up on the street, you know, the street numbers and things, and uh, we give $300 to have that thing made. Did you ever get to talk to Fess Parker? Huh? Did you ever get to talk to Fess Parker? Did you ever talk to him? Oh, yeah. You did? When I went to town to see him, this is what he said to me the first time he seen me. When I went to town, Fess come in this way, and don't buy come from Blue Ridge somewhere, they's on a truck, and they went on into town, and then when I got to go to town, you know, they used to have that old jailhouse on the street. You can't remember that, though, don't get And they'd put you, the women, if you didn't wear your apron or wear a bonnet or something to town, they'd catch you and put you in jail, and then somebody had come on you out and pay, you know, that's where they made their money. And put you in that they it was a long jail they had out there on the street. Oh, we used to have real times. Now it's just gone to nothing. It ain't nothing to go with. Fox are trying to keep the thing alive, but 
Yeah, my name is Douglas Blackley. I was born in Raven County, May the 3rd, 1942. Then the Great Locomotive Chase, which was filmed in Raven County in 1955 and 56. 56, I went to California and finished filming the movie in, in Disney Studio. The story was a true, true Civil War story, which took place in the South during the Civil War. Tennessee, Yeah, it was from uh, Atlanta to Chattanooga, Tennessee, was where the novelist took place during March or during the war. And it was filmed on the old T.F. Toledo Falls Railroad, which uh, was about as good a thing as they could get as close to that back then on the railroad system. Because it had the old uh, engine that ran, steam engine that ran from Clayton to, or Cornelia to Franklin, North Carolina. It's filmed, most of it was filmed from Toledo Falls back into Franklin, and a lot, most of it was the, the scenes that were in North Carolina. Uh, uh, where the fighting and all the horseback riding and stuff was done. When I was uh, when they were here scouting for people to be in it, I was working in uh, a little cafe called the Picnic there in town. And I was uh, 11 year old at the time. And they came in and got to talking to me and asked me, you know, if I would be interested in being in the movie. So I didn't know really anything about it until I came home and asked my mother. She had to give it a lot of thought before she would let me even think about letting me be in the movie. And people kept encouraging her, so she decided she'd let me be in it. And people kept, they come back in to pick Rick and ask me for an interview up at the Clayton Hotel, which is old. Uh, Clayton Inn now, I guess mm -hmm. And uh, they signed me a part and told me to let my hair grow out and everything. And they'd get back in contact with me. So during that time, they went back to California and they came back to get ready to shoot the movie. And they uh, talked with me again, gave me another part than one they had first assigned me to do, or want me to, the part they wanted me to play. And, uh, from then on, it was on on scene. They, uh, I was in school then, and uh, school had already started. And that was uh, they had to had me a tutor on the scene on the set where they were shooting. And they get ready to shoot a scene, I just have to leave my classroom and go out for that. They filmed then, which took. Uh, I hear they, I don't recall just how long I stayed here and then he went to I went out to California to the studio and finished filming the Great Locomotive Chase out there. And then a year later, in the fall of the next year of fifty six, I went back out there for advertisement and was on the Mouseketeers for a week series out there on advertisement on the Great Locomotive Chase. Do you remember exactly what Clayton looked like when they was making the movie. Yeah, it's changed. Uh, 
great deal at the time when they were filming the Great Locomotive Chase. It was just a, it was a booming place. Uh, uh, filming the movie and they, they put a lot of people to work that hadn't never they hadn't worked and, or had a public job really. They worked worked carpenters and now anyway, you know, you, they had things for people to do, building the props and things for for the movie. And I'd say at that time that was the most money that was ever in Raven County. It was it was brought in here by that movie. And then there wasn't any textile plants here. The only thing that was here then was a shirt factory. And that that worked on you know most people that worked there was women. And they put they were just a lot of a lot of work. There's a lot of money involved. They didn't they wouldn't attack much people. They really. They really spent some money and, and paid people good wages. Can you tell me again what uh, what your character's name was? The one you played? The one I played was Henry Haney. And I was a fireman on the Texan. And I only had a few lines to say. One was talking to Slim Pickens. and his, He played the part of uh, Mr. Bracken as an engineer on the train. And, and it was, uh, here's your coffee, Mr. Bracken. And the other line was to Jeff Hunter, who's dead now, and he was a, uh, I'll fire for you, Mr. Fuller. He played the part of, uh, uh, I can't remember the Fuller, it was in the, he was something in the Army anyway. You said that Walt Disney and all them were nice? They were real nice, yeah. I met Disney and he talked to you and all the, the directors and all the other stars, Fess Parker. All of them, they were real good. They were just plain down to earth people. About the most dangerous part about being on the trestles and stuff? Yeah, we had to shoot scenes. Uh, in the movies, we had to catch a runaway boxcar with an engine, and uh, we had to catch it right on the trussle. And the old wooden trussle, they'd just vibrate and wobble, and the train jump up and down. That's a pretty scary part, and had to do that several times to get the shot right by catching the runaway boxcar that turned loose, but trying to block us all. And uh, that was the most frightening thing then, and was dangerous, probably, on them high trussels, wooden trussels. It was an experience for my whole family, really, and that was. Never been no high life too much except for that thing. You say you you were one of nine children. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I was one out of nine. And what they think about it today? Well, at the time they when they was filming and actually got through with uh, Disney, I got a letter from Disney asking if we'd move to California if they'd put me under contract. Which at the time. Uh, they were still six of us at home, and my dad had only been dead a year, so she wouldn't hear of that, so all that blew up. <laughs> Way back when I worked for Roosevelt Coffee in the grading business, Walt Disney come in here and made the great locomotive chase. Well, then I was the go-between between the mountain people and the movie people, and Walt Disney got me to go around and and uh, 
get the mountain people to let me take the board roofs off of their houses. We didn't have cedar shakes then like we got now. And I got people to let me take those board roofs off their house and then I put them a new tin roof or asphalt roof back in the place of that. Well then Walt Disney got to watching me work around there. And finally, when the trains come to bring the truck, when the little TF railroad was still in here then, and when it come to bring the locomotives in from California, they had loaded them in California on uh, railroad cars, but they'd had to lay railroad track up on them flat cars because the locomotives were so heavy, they'd have pushed through the floor and they laid a track, railroad track up on top of the car till they wouldn't push through the floor. Well then, who, when they come in here to make it, the man that was supposed to look after getting them things unloaded, he didn't do his homework. And then when the train come in there, me and Walt Disney was standing up there at the old depot and two or three more, and we could hear the little old train coming and pulling them and it was a chugging along and Walt Disney looked over at me and he said, Frank said, no, he first looked at the man that's supposed to do it. And the man turned plum green because he'd overlooked that. And there wasn't nothing here big enough to pick up a locomotive that weighed 200 tons. And so uh, I felt sorry. I was standing out here this and I, I heard the man that uh, was supposed to do it, he just turned every color in the rainbow. Well, that's the only time I seen Walt Disney lose his cool, and he got excited because they decided that they wanted to take them back to Atlanta and let two railroad cranes set them off on the tracks. Well, I was just an old punk boy, and I was standing there, and I felt sorry for that man that hadn't done his homework, so I said to him, I said, I can unload them things. And he says, shh, shh. He said, don't let Walt Disney hear you say that. He said, these locomotives is his pets. And he said, if you was to scratch one of them, he'd have a heart attack. I said, I don't care. I can unload them safer than you can taking them back to Atlanta. Well, Walt Disney didn't want them, since they was fine antiques, he didn't want them drove to Atlanta and unloaded and then drive them plumb back. And then I, that's when I said I could unload them. So Walt Disney overheard me talking to that old boy, and he said, Frank, did you say you could unload them? And I said, yes, sir. He said, just how would you do that? He said, they weigh 200 tons. I said, well, I'll go up here on the railroad track, and wherever we've got a side track, I'll take up about 100 foot of railroad track, and I'll take my front end loader, and move that track over out of the way, and then I'll start ramping down, and then I'll lay the track back in there, and then I'll roll that flat car down in there, and it'll then I can roll the, the locomotives right off on the on the line and out through there. And he says, "Can you do that?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "Well, you got yourself a deal." He he didn't listen to nobody else. He just listened to me, and I done everything he had to do. Well, then in about a week, I had Lincoln Webb, and Lincoln Webb had worked with me and for me, and Lincoln would do anything I told him. Well, these movie people, 
is all they act like they're all specialists and they just want to do one thing which one thing's all we can do and we was doing everything when i got all that stuff on to work with for the movies and everything then one day he eased around to me and he said frank he said, I found out and talked to the local people and I found out what they think about you around here. And he said, I don't want to start no trouble, but he said, I want you to go to California and be with me. He said, I think I need you in my business. And he says, you talk to your family about it and see if you can get it worked out and let me know. Well, I went home and told Sarah and I was a big punk and hard up and just had two babies and I went home and told her, well, she never had liked these mountains too good then. And boy, that tickled her thinking we was gonna get to go to California, you know. And so in about a week, Walt Disney, he's back up to me. And he said, Frank says, what'd your family think about it? I said, well, everybody liked it, but my daddy, and he didn't like it. But he said, I said, uh, I, I think I'll do it. Well. Walt Business says, now Frank, I'm going to tell you right now, I know enough about you and I've done what you work. And he said, I know what you'd be worth to me. And he said, I'll give you X number of dollars for 40 hours and all over 40 hours, I'm going to pay you time and a half. And the amount that it amounted to, me being born up here in these mountains, I didn't know nothing about big money. And I was the highest paid construction man that was, and that's a dollar and a quarter hour. And when he offered me that big money, I thought he was a crook and just trying to get me to go to California. So I looked at him in my mind, I didn't say nothing to him, but I said to myself, the President of the United States don't make that kind of money. And if you think you're gonna get me and my wife younger than California and us no damn way home, you got another thing coming, partner. And so I wouldn't have nothing to do with him. I dodged him. <laughs> I dodged him from being home for a long time. Then finally he he said that uh, he wanted me to go, but I told him I believe I wouldn't go, but I'd stay around here, and, and then I just stayed around here and done what come my way. The next clip comes from Hume Cronin. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Hume Cronin, he was a renowned um, actor, also um, screenplay writer. He was married to Jessica Tandy, who was a remarkable actress. She debuted the role of Blanche in A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway. Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy, along with playwright Susan Cooper, were captivated by the Foxfire books and decided to transform the stories and the spirits captured by the Foxfire students into a Broadway play. This play was later created into a movie I think it was a Hallmark movie and it actually featured John Denver alongside Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. The story is largely inspired by Aunt Airy, but as you'll hear in this clip from Hume, he talks a lot about how important it was to capture kind of this larger message of the spirit of Appalachia and um, how to navigate some of the changes that were happening in Appalachia. So this interview is from the late 1970s and then the film was produced shortly after the Broadway play in the early 80s. Try and to, synthesis is the word, I'm to, to try to derive from all this material the synthesis of the conflict that's implied 
by those books. This is an area which for many years has been in a state of change, and the change carries certain aspects that are tragic, because the old way of life, which was established by the mountain families, um, which was initiated by the great-grandparents of many of those youngsters, uh, is inevitably changing, passing, going. And the feeling about land, the feeling about the earth and its riches and what it gives, the feeling of family, closeness of family, and the importance of neighborhood and neighbors, and the combination of self-reliance and mutual dependence on the people who are over on the next ridge or down in the hollow or wherever, you know, has gone, the, the, or it's, it's changing. The land has now taken on a different aspect. It's no longer what it, what, it, what it provides to put on the table or to take to the market. It's what are the views? Uh, where, do we, where do we build the summer places uh, so that the rich escaping the mugginess and heat of a Florida summer can come up and, and, and enjoy as tourists? Mm -hmm. well, you know. And so in move the developers and the people who enjoy the land but don't use it. Uh, and little by little, cultural values and attitudes change. Television comes in, came in long ago. That has an enormous impact on the young. They see a world way beyond the Blue Ridge. And they, they find a lot of it inviting. And so they go off and do other things. But now, fortunately, some of them come back to rediscover their roots and, and, and the life that they found in what they found outside is a very important element that's missing. And they come back to rediscover something that is essential of the spirit. This last clip comes from Joey Penland. This interview was conducted last year by Foxfire Fellows for the magazine publication. So you can read um, his interview more in depth in the magazine if you're interested. But Joey's interview features a different aspect of movie production. Joey works with props. He actually creates props. Um, he works part-time at an antique appliance shop in town, restoring old antique appliances. He was a huge help in getting our wood stove back to working order. He does remarkable work and several of the appliances that he's worked on were actually featured in films like Julie and Julia and the um, fourth Indiana Jones as much as we dislike that movie. <laughs> but he also has started creating props on his own and so he does a lot of different type of work for game companies and stage productions and theater productions. So we're going to hear from Joey a little bit more about the prop side of movie making. So what was the biggest or most extensive prop you've made? The biggest size-wise is probably it'd probably be either my personal gaming table or the refrigerator that we did for uh, the Indiana, the fourth Indiana Jones film. Oh, you the did one that? he. Uh, He's in a city in the desert, and he doesn't realize that it's a test city for nuclear ex 
explosion and he runs and he gets in this refrigerator and fastens himself in and blasts him across the desert and he survives. <laughs> so that's that's probably the biggest size-wise that I've done. Probably the most expensive one I've done too would be that refrigerator. With props, you got to know every material. And if you don't know the material, you got to learn the material. So you've got to walk through them. What exactly do you want? And then you estimate your time and materials into that and, and go from there because they, they know what they want. He knew he wanted this, this piece, but that doesn't really tell you a whole lot of like, what do you really want? If someone says, I want a suit of armor, okay? Do you want a display suit of armor? Do you want a suit of armor you can wear? Who's it going on? Is it black? Is it shiny? Do you, does it matter if it's made of aluminum or steel? You know, is this going to go in a museum? Does it need to be historically correct? It's all questions you have to ask because when somebody contacts you for a job, they're just going to say, I need a suit of armor. I need this game board. The real good part about this is it's a direction that I can go and do what I want to do and make money at it. The, the take on prop making is especially in North Georgia right now is we don't have a huge gaming community and right now we're just starting to see the movie industry move in more. We're luckily getting a few more theaters back to do uh, live action stuff so prop making for them works a little bit too. I can get some stuff in for them. But the real take of it right now is it's not as steady as it could be. So can you name some of the, I guess, movies or just like popular films or ideas that your props have been in? Well, I, I'm, as I mentioned, I did the refrigerator for the Indiana Jones film. And it, I, I got started doing actual props for films here with my other job at Antique Appliances. And that's, that got me, we did the refrigerator for the Indiana Jones. I had a dishwasher that I did for Julie and Julia. It was a Julia Child documentary movie, I believe. Uh, we have a piece in The Hunger Games, the third one. There was a huge ice box that we did for that. And a, a lot of little props and this and that. A lot of times when a movie comes to you or a studio comes to you, they won't tell you what movie it's going to be in because at that point, they haven't released that they're even making that movie. And even if they do tell you that a movie title, that's usually a working title and it's not the real title of the movie. They do that for secrecy in the industry so nothing gets leaked or let out, of, you know, they don't want me taking a picture of this prop and saying, hey, I'm doing this for the Indiana Jones film. Another thing I like in props is I, I like smalls. I don't like to build big props. Smalls are easy. I can ship them. I don't have to deliver them. Even though the movie industry is right there in Atlanta now, it's still, if I don't have to drive to Atlanta, I'm better off. So. How far away have you shipped something? Usually it's within the United States. The furthest is probably California. The, the movie industry is still, it's still bigger in California, although it's moving to places like Georgia rapidly. Uh, Georgia has, 
Georgia has to give every incentive for the movie industry to move here. We, we, we give them a tax break. California has done a lot of negatives as far in the eyes of the movie industry. They're, the permits you have to get in California to do anything are just ridiculously expensive now. And Georgia's not like that as of now. So they're, they're moving. Georgia's not the only place. There's a town in North Carolina, and excuse me for not remembering it, that is also pretty big movie industry moving in and they're just they're they're pulling out of california i feel like personally that we will see hollywood decline rapidly in the next 20 30 years just because they're finding these better venues and they're pulling out of california because of this the taxes and the, the permits well i hope you found this interesting today um certainly exciting to think about movies being made here in our little raven county and i hope that more movies will uh, be produced here it certainly is an interesting and exciting time in georgia for the movie industry um, obviously COVID has complicated things but we hope that once things are safe again we'll see more movies move into the area and also see a better development of relationships between moving production companies and our local community I'd like to encourage you all to consider joining our Patreon program. We appreciate everybody's support. And as most of you know, we are a nonprofit organization. So we rely on the financial support of listeners like you to help keep our mission going. So if you are interested in helping support this podcast or our magazine program or our museum interpretation, please consider joining our Patreon. It's a great way to get a membership if you are not a local, you get great benefits, including a discount code each month. And starting at our $10 a month pledge, you will receive a free digital copy of a back issue of the Foxfire magazine. Um, so far, we've been posting the original magazines from 1967 and 1968, and we'll continue in that trend. So I definitely encourage you to check out our Patreon page. You can find the link to that through our website, which is www.foxfire.org, or you can go to Patreon directly slash foxfire.org. As always, please feel free to reach out to us. We're interested in hearing how you all are coping as COVID continues to drag on. Our students will be releasing a special magazine this fall featuring interviews surrounding the COVID crisis. So that'll be an interesting publication to have. So if there are things you want to see, things you want to learn, please just shoot us an email. It still lives at foxfire.org or you can reach out to us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook handle is foxfire.org and our Twitter handle is it still lives and the number one. Thank you and we'll see you all next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>